0: Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Hi Paul, welcome. (laughs) It's a real treat to meet you and to have the chance to chat with you about your new book, Homegrown, A Year of Growing, Cooking and Eating.
1: Thanks, Anthea. It's an absolute pleasure to be on the podcast. I um I love having a chat, and uh, doubly so when it's about my book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, have you been out in the garden already today?
1: Uh, I have. I've uh, been out feeding the chickens, uh, and we've just had some strawberries uh reach that perfect level of ripeness so my little kids have been out gorging themselves on strawberries before their second last day of school today uh and uh you know because we're in this la nina period at the moment uh we've got a really sunny day here today but that's on the back of you know a, a hundred and so mil of rain last week so everything's just exploding the the, the garden is exploding
0: <laughs> it's quite hard to um keep things producing well when it keeps raining isn't
1: it it is and it really you know given the timing of it in this critical spring you know into early summer period it's really set back a lot of that classic summer produce you know like the, the you're not really i'm not really getting many of those fruiting style vegetables yet where usually in a in a in a dry year in a warmer year you would like cucumbers and eggplants and tomatoes there the plants themselves are going okay but uh but the fruit is almost not existent you know, and, uh, and then of course you've got the challenges of things like powdery mildew, uh, you know, on your, on your cucurbits when, when the weather gets like this. So, you know, it's, um, it's a blessing, uh, and it can also have its challenges with high rainfall, but given how dry things were towards the end of 2019, uh, I'd, I think people have got long memories Uh, and as much as we'd like to see a little bit of sunshine and maybe a little less rain at the moment, it's still very fresh in the memory, just how dry things can get. So I think people are still, myself included, really appreciating every drop of rain that falls.
0: Tell me a bit about what motivated or inspired you to write this particular book now and can you paint a bit of an overview of what it's all about and how it's organised?
1: Sure. So, I guess for me, Anthea, uh, I on the back of my work from River Cottage, uh, I came to the realization that that you know a lot of people are really the the idea of growing your own food and being a part of a community and 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 cooking from scratch it really resonates with a lot of people. I'd almost say most people, you know, or the, at least the majority of people, that it strikes some sort of chord with them. Uh, but what I found with River Cottage was that. Although it resonated with them, it was still a very aspirational prospect that they people were kind of going, you know, oh, I love what you did on the farm there in Tilba. Uh, you know, one day I'd love to do something like that, you know, when the kids are older or when we're in a better position financially or, you know, whatever the reason was that it couldn't happen straight away. And I came to the realization that really that people were kind of missing out on all the amazing benefits of growing their own food because they, they, there was this kind of idea that it had to happen on a little small holding Uh, and i think you know that the idea of rural living resonates very strongly uh, amongst a great deal of australians we you know where we have been an agricultural nation in the past but you know currently we're the most urbanized society on the planet you know we are a highly urban society and increasingly less people live in the countryside in australia as our farms get bigger and our country towns get smaller we might be seeing a little bit of a bounce back on that, you know, with the great COVID C slash tree change. But uh, what I came to realize was that there was a great deal of opportunity for people to embrace growing food uh, and cooking food with intent and, you know, food that was locally grown and nutrient dense and, and sharing it uh, with their family and their community. There was a great deal of opportunity for them to do it wherever they are uh, in the urban or suburban context, or whether you live in town or, you know, uh, because not many people live on 20 acres of rolling green volcanic soil, you know, in Australia. So I really wanted to write a book that empowered people to take a bit of a plunge into growing some of their own food. You know, there's so much amazing cooking literature out there at the moment. Uh, and there has been, you know, for, you know, probably for the last decade that, you know, the, 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 the cookbook or the cooking sector of the publishing world has just been going from strength to strength, you know, and, uh, and people have been really relishing it. And I think people have been celebrating, you know, this, it's kind of deepening of uh, a culinary culture in australia and, and really embracing home cookery and, and and you know and kind of some of the skill that's involved with that and i feel like a natural extension of that is people starting to grow some of their own food because when you start to cook your own food you get a real appreciation for the quality of ingredients that you're using and then i feel like if you can then grow that food and cook it then then this whole kind of complex raft of benefits uh you know a cascade of benefits happens because it's the, like the the benefit becomes greater than the sum of the parts when you're growing it yourself and you're cooking it yourself and you're sharing it with people that that mean something to you then it's it's almost to me the fundamentally human condition that if you can get those three things right everything else in life just falls into place if you can if you can you know grow a bit of food cook it and share it with the people you love, then that you can kind of weather almost any storm, you know, because that's what we're hardwired to, you know, to to resonate with that way of life. It's just been a part of human life since the dawn of our species, really, to have some sort of connection to the country where we live on, the food that we eat and the people around us. And I guess for me, I wanted to write a book that was that really helped the beginner gardener um, because. You know, I, I buy a lot of gardening titles, uh, but I often find that they're written by gardeners for gardeners. You know, that there's a lot of assumed knowledge in there, and there's not a lot of like nuts and bolts basics uh, to get people started if they've never, you know, had that uh, opportunity to garden before. So I guess for me, it was just a a really great opportunity to to empower people to to grow a little bit of food. So the overview of the book is it's broken up into four the four seasons of temperate Australia, uh, you know, of the classic, you know, four seasons. And then within each of those seasons, uh, there is some vegetables to grow, uh, some classic, you know, desirable home produce, veggies that people like to grow, some instructions around how to grow them. Uh, then there's also some recipes of seasonal produce at that time of year. So even if you're not uh, growing your own food, you can at least dip into the recipe section uh, and realize what's in season at that time of year, and you can cook seasonally. And then uh, there's a couple of little DIY projects that you can do, you know, on your Sunday or your Saturday out in the garden if you want to get out and and you know get busy in the garden. There's little bits and bobs that you can do around doing a bit of upcycling and all those bits that, um, you know, that keep you busy in the garden. So I, I guess it's, it's not really, I mean, I certainly hope people read it from cover to cover, but it's, I I kind of view it more as a reference work that people can dip in and out of depending on what season they're in and, and what they're after. Like if they're in autumn and they want to know what to plant, you go to that section. If you're, you know, you're in winter and you want a job to do in the garden, you go to that section, you know, so there's all these little bits that we can, that we can dip in and out of. So, yeah. So it's so thus far been very well received. So it's uh, hopefully that, you know, that continues.
0: Yeah, no, there's, there's absolutely something for everyone in it really, isn't there? And um, as you say, it's, it features, you know, recipes growing your own or cooking uh, from seasonal produce and features planting guards for the most popular vegetables and fruit trees and so forth. The, that you can sort of give it a go at whatever scale you might have whether it's your balcony backyard or nature strip or community garden so it's as you say it's invitational to people at at all different stages and steps I suppose as you say it's structured over a year over four seasons of living growing cooking and sharing Um, and you've spoken a bit about why you've written it but why now was it was it um was writing it something of a positive or something a a sort of uplifting thing to do uh during COVID and with your family and with your greater Bermagui community and friends and family
1: yeah you know I, I I wouldn't say that I wrote it necessarily as a salve to to the hard times of COVID uh I mean I certainly did write it as a as a as a call to the answer of people wanting to know more about growing food. You know, there's uh I think with lockdowns happening in um, you know the at least the two major capitals in Australia and across you know the two most popular states in Australia lots of people found themselves at home with more time in the garden and you know growing growing food has been this this intergenerational knowledge exchange and community knowledge exchange that's happened for countless generations and really it's only now in the very, very modern world, you know, in this century, in this millennia, and probably in the last 70 or so years that that, that tradition for the very first time has been broken. Uh, and, you know, I kind of touched on this earlier where we're, we're hardwired to, to derive happiness from that process you know because it means we're going to live and survive it means we're safe you know if we've got food security and we've got community uh then you know that's a good thing for us as a social primate you know that's that means we're we're happy uh and we've kind of been removed from it in the age of industrial agriculture and convenience and i mean you can totally understand why uh because it's not you know to say that gardening is easy uh but anything worth doing isn't, you know, uh, and for, for people that have had generations of growing their own food and the trials and tribulations that come with that, if all of a sudden you could, uh, you know, you could go to the supermarket and not worry about growing it, uh, and then spend the rest of your spare time playing golf, then, you know, that's, that's a pretty appealing proposition. Uh, but now I feel like that, that we've kind of realized that there's actual, you know, benefit to the toil, you know, that it's, uh, even if in some small way, I don't think anyone's, you know, Plotting to be totally uh, self-sufficient out there on their balcony in, you know, Newtown in Sydney, uh, but you can certainly get the whole raft of benefits from just growing a few herbs. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it definitely was an amazing experience during COVID you know, uh, to be able to focus on writing this and and I guess to be able to focus on creating some positive messaging around growing food. But I think, you know, looking to the future uh, more broadly around some of the challenges that the world's facing right now, Anthea, that I I think there's a lot that can, um, a lot that can be achieved by a world of backyard food growers, Uh, you know, where we've kind of, if you look at any of the raft of issues on the planet right now we're like there's enormous amounts of organic material going into landfill which is causing a problem for you know local governments around the world there's pandemics of loneliness there's pandemics of isolation uh, preventable health illnesses there's plummeting biodiversity uh you know and then there's the challenges of of adapting a centralized and industrial food system to shifting climates and i am of the belief that if everyone grew a little bit of their own food, if everyone thought of themselves as a farmer and looked at everywhere as a farm, uh, then we would go a long way to addressing all those issues to to me, you know, growing a bit of your own food is a bit of a a magic bullet that can, that can really solve a lot of the world's problems. And, you know, I I think we see this a lot in, especially in the youth with the, with the rise of the idea of climate anxiety where everyone feels like the world's going to hell in a handbasket uh, and that, everyone feels like there's nothing that they can do about it because it's such a global problem. Well, I think growing food is a really local response to the global issue. And it's something that has very low barriers to entry. You know, you can buy a packet of seeds for three bucks 50 there's, you know, you can find dirt, you can find a patch of dirt somewhere, no matter where you live, whether it's a community garden or even if you grill a growing on a median strip somewhere uh, and you can do that. And, you know, and it's all of a sudden it gets us out of that human world in that mechanized consumer world into the organic world uh, and the nature world, where you're you're observing living things and you're working with natural systems, and it's it's, you know, as a as a human within that, you are you're a steward or a custodian, or you know, or you try your best to, to foster that life, but really, it's beyond your control, and I think that's a very healthy thing for people to come to the realization of that we can't micromanage the entire world. We love to, it's we you know we it's a again another. Uh, Hardwired ancestral kind of mental action to try and make sense and control the world around us because it leads to more safety. But I think sometimes you can just exist in the natural world and gain a great deal of benefit from it.
0: Yeah. I think, thanks for that, Paul.
1: That's okay. I go, I go on philosophical rants from time to time, Anthea. Don't worry.
0: Yeah. No, but it's a really beautiful book and it's, you know, it's lighter on text than your previous books and it's packed with beautiful, really inspirational photographs and, uh, you know, for the reader and for the viewer, really, you can approach it in so many ways. Um, you live in Bermagui and the book features not only your garden, but I believe images from other people's gardens and produce and family and so forth. Tell me about the gardening and greater community within Bermagui in terms of what you've just been speaking about. How does everyone seem to be doing now after the bushfires and you know COVID and more? Do you see um, people getting out and about into their home and perhaps community gardens more than... Um, before
1: yeah uh, you know i think that uh, it was a really kind of interesting it's not the word but it was it was a complex time here you know uh because Birmingui, i mean we were exposed to the the full uh experience of the bushfires but the town itself never burnt uh and the fire you know never kind of got closer to more than five kilometers but we we were, we were an epicenter for surrounding areas that did get burned and, you know, Cabago is an incredible community and was tragically, you know, almost raised by the fires on the, uh, in the early hours of the New Year's Eve, 2019. And, you know, most people in Cabago, Bermagoo is their center. So we were, you know, we kind of had this cross community, uh, you know, trauma uh, and know but amazingly we didn't have the burnt landscape in the immediate vicinity around bermagui so but i think you know during that period there was a really strong as often happens on the back of disasters uh you know a really strong sense of community galvanization that that the community banded together and and you know did their best to help people that were struggling you know to help people that had lost everything or to you know, and in a very kind of like discreet, you know, no fanfare, beautiful grassroots kind of way where there was no, you know, expectations for medals being pinned on chess for helping out, but it was just this kind of beautiful, you know, heartwarming sharing in a very discreet way. Um, and it was, it was wonderful. Uh, you know, and then we, then we kind of had the drought breaking rain in February of 2022. So and then the countryside just exploded with green. And then we went into the COVID pandemic. So it was a, it was a really wild time and, you know, very challenging for a lot of uh, friend, my friends that are in the tourism and hospitality industry down here, some of them actually ended up, you know, going to the wall on it, uh, because they just, they lost two seasons in a row, you know, two critical trading periods in a row. But I think, you know, it, it really has, it has got people in their gardens and we do have a very strong community here, which is it's, it's wonderful. We've got an excellent network of people and, and, uh, and support and and communication. And, and, you know, increasingly I think more and more people are, are jumping into their gardens and and spending that time growing a lot of their own food and and really i guess uh realizing the benefit from it because you know sometimes you know when you're living regionally everyone thinks the produce is amazing uh, but sometimes that can be the polar opposite like if you're if you're not taking it into your own hands uh, and you're living regionally sometimes it can be really challenging to get good produce
0: a bit of a food desert
1: <laughs> yeah you know if if you're if you're if you're relying solely on one of the major supermarkets then you know the produce is really ordinary like we when we were living in melbourne a few years back from 2017 to 2019 we'd get the you know i'd grow some food in the backyard and what i didn't grow uh, we got delivered from the series you know organic boxes which was amazing like it came straight from the the markets you know straight from the wholesaler to your door on the same day and just the most amazing organic produce delivered to your door and that kind of spoiled us and then we came back here and there was a transition period you know because of the fires and because of moving house and you know that there wasn't really anything happening in the garden and we were dependent on our local you know to degree on our local supermarket and i was like oh wow this is this produce is no good like it serves a purpose absolutely uh, and i you know I, I don't want to come across as sounding like elitist or you know or patronizing but because i can totally appreciate that some people have no other option but you know the reality is that on a scale of you know produce quality like that's at the bare, it's at the you know the lowest median know they're like whatever we can get that is serviceable uh but doesn't have to be exceptional uh that'll do and so you know i think that people have recognized that as that's you know we've got one major supermarket here in burmy and uh people have come to the realization that it's not amazing you know that it's a great convenience but the produce in particular is not sensational so so we there's a lot there's a stack of like people growing food in their backyards and we also Uh, I've got a group of uh, five families that support uh, a market gardener just to the north of us. So we're in like a community supported agriculture deal with them, uh, which has been, I think, a real eye opener for, you know, some of the families involved with that as well, who may not have been as uh, kind of familiar with that small, uh, you know, diverse market garden business uh, model and the challenges that they face because you know, they, they've they had, they're in a the new year as well. And they've, they've you know, they've sold a 30-week CSA uh, on the promise of, you know, summer produce rolling in and they've been flooded twice, you know, like their whole patch has been under a foot of water. And so, you know, people are now, you know, some of the families are going, well, I'm sick. What is, we could have another box of greens this week, you know, like when are we going to get some good stuff? And it's, you know, a matter of then, and I try to take on that comms, you know, rather than the farmer having to do it. Because they're so busy and under the pump, to be like, well, this is what it's about. You know, this is the reality of growing food in a community. And it's not, it's a two-way street, right? Like they're supporting us with amazing produce, but we have to support them through the challenges of growing food. Because if we don't support them, they they go under. And then next year there's no no one growing this amazing nutrient-dense food, and we're back to whatever we can grow in our own backyards and uh and the supermarket.
0: I know that's really interesting. I spoke with the farm at Ford team. Uh, in the blue mountains i don't know if you know them They've-
1: i do they're a great bunch they
0: are an amazing but christine gordon from readings with whom you spoke to launch the book online was a lovely
1: that's right that was a great day
0: referred to it as a kind book ah oh. <laughs> perfect gift <laughs> and it is a gift in so many ways something as you've already said to dip in and out of Throughout the year. It's friendly and warm, non-intimidating, accessible, conversational, and all the rest. Something that really strikes me about Homegrown is that it offers a really lovely sort of invitation to people of all ages, mm. um, across generations to get together and share doing things in the garden and or in the kitchen. And you've you've spoken about these interject this intergenerational knowledge that was once very common and temporarily lost perhaps over recent decades, but now coming back into back into force in and your book's very much a part of that whole movement. Would you like to to comment or talk a bit more about that, about intergenerational knowledge sharing, and yeah. and how this book is structured, perhaps through its emphasis on images and light text. To, to, you know, I can imagine granddad and a really little child getting together over this book.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I think that that's uh, that, that notion of intergenerational connection is, you know, again, it's something that, we've, that we've, we're losing, you know, it's not to say it's totally lost, but it, it feels like that a phenomena of the modern world is compartmentalization and hyper individualism, that we've kind of lost our communities or our communities are under threat. Uh, and in particular, uh, you know, our, at the structure of our family units and the benefit of that uh you know kind of kids are off to daycare both parents are at work old people are in the old folks home you know and we're all lucky if we can see each other for one meal a year at christmas and i mean that's that's really to the detriment of all of us you know there's so much there's so much to be gained from relationships with our elders and you know i guess in our kind of neoliberal capitalist society we we really focus the 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 power of beauty and youth you know that's the 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 ultimate commodity you know but you have a look at any traditional society and the elders are revered and celebrated because they've got runs on the board you know it's like when i see a 20 year old life coach on instagram i'm like what 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 the hell can you teach me about life you just got out of high school yeah, what, are you going to give me like an hour consult to make me look good and like her while I do yoga? Come on, like what, <laughs> you can teach me literally nothing about life. Uh, well, maybe you can. Maybe, that you know, I shouldn't say nothing because there's always lessons to be learned from anyone, even from our children, there are lessons to be learned. Uh, but, you know, I, I I really enjoy that. And, and I, I think that, you know, that in particular when it comes to growing food, uh, the the wisdom of our elders can't be underestimated because they they've had seasons see they've had decades of growing food they've seen how to garden in droughts they've seen how to garden in you know in wet years in in years with crazy winds they've they've seen that full gamut uh, and they've know they've grown and built their soils and they've grown their understanding of their their you know their their patch and i think there's a huge amount of wisdom to be to be gained from that i mean i love that the 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 farming community i feel like does that really well still you know that the old the old farmers people still turn to them you know about when when weather's weird they're like oh i spoke to old bruce you know he's been here for 70 years and he said oh it's not as dry as the drought and 37 you know and then what they did then it was like this the earth split open and oh this is the most rain they've had since 54 you know when the water came up over the local hall so there's still that you know, in that kind of community, but I feel like in our urban community, old people are just kind of shunted aside. So, and I mean, gardening really is a a beautiful thing to share across the generations. Um, and in particular, you know, that that notion of you know grandparents and children, uh, because you know it's it's a reality. You know, as as people in our middle age with you know young families. Like, we're working, we're busy, we're paying off mortgages, we're doing that whole like prime career shtick, you know? And so it, we don't necessarily have as much time, but grandparents have time and kids have time and, and, kids have enthusiasm and energy and grandparents have knowledge, you know? Yeah. And I, I just love that, you know, what I have really gained from being in the garden with my own children is perspective, you know, it's pace and perspective because they, as parents, we try, we kind of like whip them, you know, like, come on, you got to get to school. Come on, get your school uniform on. Come on. We're going to go clean your teeth, get your shoes on out the door, blah, 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 blah. Whereas kids are just, you know, they don't have that concept of a schedule. Like they're just like purely in the moment and they're, in, you know, they're, Wrapped in whatever it is they're doing, and they are literally closer to the ground than us. You know, they, they and not just they are more observant, but they are you know a good meter closer to the ground than I am. Yes, <laughs> uh, and they see things that you don't. Uh, you know, and they see like these tiny little interactions of insects or of, of little things coming out of the ground or, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and they go, look at this, dad. And you get down and you see it at their level and, and you talk about it. And, you know, and I think for me, that's one thing that I'm hugely conscious of as a parent, I've got two young boys, six and four, and I, I want to instill in them an awe in of nature. You know, not not that it's like, oh no, not, oh ants, oh yuck, ants. No, whoa, ants! How amazing are ants? Mm. Look at the size of that thing that it's carrying. Like, where it's carrying it all the way over its, its nest over there. It's twenty meters away. Could you imagine carrying something three <laughs> times as big as you for ten kilometers? That's what this ant's doing. You know, and 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 it's and it's rubbing off, and it's beautiful. It's up to us to raise the next generation of Earth custodians. Yeah. And if we treat nature as something to be, you know commanded and domineered and and bulldozed over, then that's what our kids are going to do with it. Where if we teach them to respect it and be in awe of it, then certainly that's the hope that they'll take that through into their adult lives.
0: Mm, There's certainly lots in your book for people of different ages to big into together (laughs) your previous book the edible garden cookbook and growing guide was first published in 2019 and i think it's just been re-released is that right
1: uh yeah it's on it's on its fourth reprint now jeez last time i checked anyway so uh... that's
0: okay can you tell me a little bit about how you see or feel the two books relate to each other did did feedback on that book Feed into the way you've gone about this book quite directly.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, I I think I kind of looked at the how much the edible garden resonated with people, uh, and found a way to to continue communicating in that space without too much overlap. So I guess the the edible garden was a piece that was more focused on what space you had available. You know, It's uh, so it's kind of targeted towards, you know, whether you've got no garden or a sunny windowsill or a courtyard or a backyard. Uh, and then looking at the things you can do off the back of that, as well as a more A to Z approach to the vegetable growing. Uh, and then I thought, well, for this one, you know, often people find themselves at the beginning of spring with no idea what to do or how to get started. And so I thought, well, I'd like to stage, this is more of a a kind of calendar based book, this one where you can kind of go, well, what time are you coming into autumn? Like, what should I be planting in the garden? Or I'm in the middle of summer, is it too late to plant stuff? Uh, You know, and they can dip in and out of it in that sense. So, and I mean, I, I feel like after these two books that, that, that I've kind of, I'm complete in that space now, Yeah, you know, I feel like between the edible garden and homegrown that, that uh, I've, I've kind of covered everything that I want to cover uh, which was great because you know, there's only, there's, you know, these books operate under a format, you know, universally, not just my books, but there's an expectation of how big they are and how much content they will hold. Uh, and I don't think I could get it all in the first book. Uh, and I certainly felt like there was enough to cover, you know, there was ample to put into a second book. But now I've got these two, uh, um, I, I think that'll be it for this kind of gardening space, for me at least, for the moment anyway.
0: Yeah, no, they're, they're really lovely companion books too, quite different. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, let's talk about family and childhood a little bit and how you got into this whole, you know, gardening sustainability uh, in the edible garden in the preface or somewhere. You speak lovingly about your mum and dad and of your childhood in the Upper Hunter. Yes. uh, Where food was a little pragmatic, but there was a great love of gardening and of the environment. And you then talk about how you went woofering in Tasmania and that further forged your love of all things, food, gardening, environmental and local and regional food, and, and led you into being uh, the host of the popular series River Cottage Australia. T- tell me just, you know, briefly, what what was the sort of food you could easily access and eat at home in your childhood in a country town in the Upper Hunter like? Uh, was it a bit of a fresh food desert back in those days or not? And how has it
1: Yeah, it was. No, it was. It really was, you know. It was... Um... We just had a, a very small general store, you know, uh, which was had been running for about a hundred years. You know, cause it was Muraranda where I grew up it was kind of a town that peaked in the early 1900s. It was the end of the line um, for the Northwestern train, uh, you know, because the range the range was so steep.
0: Yeah, the divider on the Great Dividing Range. Yeah,
1: exactly. You know, and so, and I only really came to the realization, you know, as an adult that I lived on the literal border between the Murray Darling catchment and the, you know, and the the Hunter River catchment, that it was it was that exact pass at Hall's Pass there in murray that a raindrop fell on one side, it traveled thousands of kilometres to, you know, to South Australia. And if it fell on the other side, then it went to Newcastle. Um, but you know, it it wasn't, it was, it's there's a lot of horse studs. The Emirates Park have got a big stud up there and it's kind of mountain country as well. So there was a lot of kind of beef grazing, but not really a lot of food production other than beef grazing uh, you know, uh, and people growing fodder for that, maybe on some of the river flats, you know, and, and having that small general store, you know, it's like, it's kind of, it was classic. It's gotten better now, no doubt. And, you know, no offense to the the people that ran the store back then, but that's just what they were, what they were dealing with, you know, they, uh, that's, they just couldn't get, you know, the logistics chain wasn't as kind of sophisticated as it was these days. So, I mean, for us, there was, you know, as kids, there was, there was a lot of packaged food, you know, it was just like that kind of classic, you know, lunchbox fare. you know, like cheese and crackers in a packet and chips in a packet and muesli bars in a packet. And, you know, and kind of classic white bread and Vegemite sandwiches. I mean, my kids don't really hugely different from that these days. I mean, if I try to give my oldest anything but a cheese and Vegemite sandwich in his lunchbox, he goes on strike. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, we've had some beautiful roast chicken last night. What about some green, you know, some beautiful mazuna and chicken and avocados. like, nah, dad, cheese and Vegemite, please. Thank you. Tell
0: me, Paul, yeah. is, are your mum and dad growing more of their own fresh food now? More by you?
1: <laughs> uh not really no no well not really you know they um my mum, mum's like she mum does grow a bit of her own food actually she uh but she's always been an ornamental gardener she's um you know and a really amazing one at that you know it's um she always ever ever since i was a kid we've just we've always had a beautiful garden you know it's uh even you know the 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 block that we grew up on was on the edge of Marundai, population 900 it was a kind of two acre mm kind of peri-urban block when they mum and dad purchased it it was you know it was a clay and conglomerate rock horse paddock you know but by the time mum decided to downsize a few years ago it was like a a show garden you know it was amazing it was fantastic garden clubs from around the region would come and visit it you know (laughs) like it was so amazing but food was never really a high priority but she was certainly an amazing or, you know, ornamental gardener. And, and and still is. And she lives in Scourn now and has this amazing ornamental block. But but my old man was never he's never really been a gardener. Like it's not never been his cup of tea. Uh I think he like has a bit of a crack at the odd fruit tree and and stuff like that. But he's uh you yeah, know no, he's he's not he's not a gardener i certainly you know got the gardening from mum's side of the family her father you know uh like many of our grandparents was a was a gardener you know because they their generation had to grow some food because mm-hmm. if you didn't then you know you you kind of you, you went without you know it was only a very select kind of yeah. Yeah. You know, kind of wealthy-ish group that could afford to buy all their own food from the market or from the corner store or anything like that. So, so he, um, he was an excellent ornamental and food grower uh, and I have, you know, kind of amazing memories of his veggie patch as a kid and growing heaps of cucumbers and tomatoes in the, in the kind of dry scone climate there. Uh, you know, and he always had really pumping citrus trees and, no, it was great. So Yeah,
0: yeah. I spoke recently with Paul Van Rijk, who um, is the author of A New Food History of Australia called True to the Land. Oh. And uh, he and his family were Sri Lankan immigrants who lived in Singleton. Oh, yeah, nice one. Yeah, and he referred to how back then his family simply couldn't source many of the ingredients that they loved and mm. would like to have traditionally cooked with. Does that, Does that sound familiar to you?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I I, I don't, I, I highly doubt it does. It sounds, it sounds relatable, uh, but I, you know, coming from a, an Anglo family, I think, you know, we were meat and three veg, so we could kind of always get that. But I can imagine for a Sri Lankan family wanting to stay true to their food traditions that they just would have raised a lot of eyebrows going to the local supermarket looking for, you know, for ingredients that would be readily available in Sri Lanka, you know, that's, uh, but I mean, that's a part of that great. And that sounds like a really interesting book, uh, kind of that, you know, that. In-
0: it's, a, it's a great book. It really. Into first peoples' foods and the white Australia policy, and just just how yeah just how much and how richly our food traditions and cultures have changed over the last, say, twenty to forty years. It's a great book.
1: Yeah, and I and I think you know what I find really interesting about you know, certainly the colonial aspect of Australians' food history is that we we weren't you know we were kind of viewed as an agricultural society, but we weren't agrarian. Uh, you know, you were you were convict settler, soldier settler, you know, land prospectors uh, that were engaging in kind of colonial agriculture, which is like frontier agriculture. Where it's like you just use one block. Uh, and once it falls to pieces, there's a new horizon. So you're over there and you displace whoever's there and, you know, and they, there's always a new horizon to exploit. Whereas what I found really fascinating about my travels to South Australia was that that kind of represented the first colonial settlement of agrarians with the German Lutherans, people that came from a, a background of, of kind of farming in one spot for th- hundreds of years, thousands of years. And you can see that in, the, in some of the farming practices around South Australia, where they're still kind of going strong, in the same spot.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting observation, that building their own brave new world, yeah. It was-
1: yeah, you know, and that was the first time that you actually got farmers settling to farm instead, of, you know, because it's like it's complex. And I think, you know, so much of because they weren't truly farmers, a lot of the early colonial, you know, settler convict farmers, they were they were kind of working the land on this top-down British philosophy where it was like they were expected they had these inexhaustible you know British soils that would behave a certain way uh, and it was totally wrong and because these people weren't used to you know working with the complexities of landscape we paid the price in terms of topsoil loss and you know and cult you know um ecology decimation all those you know kind of crazy things that we've inherited and but what I love about Australia is that uh we're kind of one of the leading voices in the world of sustainable and regenerative agriculture because of because of that and because of the challenges that the Australian climate and continent uh presents, that that Australian farmers have had to adapt and they've had to learn how to work with these extremely challenging landscapes. Uh, and and that's that's got you know relevance to the rest of the world because if it can work here in Australia, then, then surely it can work almost anywhere else
0: yeah no that's that, that's a great observation driest continent on earth with the highest rainfall variability in this that at the moment. yeah
1: and ancient thin soils and you know it's uh it's, mm. it's no easy task
0: well um i really love the seasonal rhythm and structure of your book um like in summer taking time to make different types of organic fertilizers or pickle summer produce for a quick bite or to be uh Uh, shelf stable for the pantry and as great gifts for for friends and family it's just it's just really motivational and and um, doable I just love it just as we sort of you know focus in on your book a bit as families because I think it's a really lovely gift for Christmas you know it's it's like thanks Anthea a gift that keeps on giving (laughs) Um, as families get together over summer for Christmas and for the holidays what, what, what do you suggest they might focus on growing And obviously it varies where you are, but
1: yeah, I mean, I think like really, uh, well, we're in, you know, kind of mid December now, it's probably not too late to get some, some greens and radishes in, you know, like if you, Mm -hmm. if you wanted something you were listening, you know, right before Christmas, you know, might be pushing it a little bit now, uh, but you know, if you're in a nice warm climate and you get the right conditions, you'd certainly have a few baby radishes and some greens to add to the kitchen table and, you know, and you could probably even get some advanced uh, potted herbs and things like that and get a little bit of growth on them before christmas Uh, and i mean really i think that's any like anything really Uh, those really kind of fast growing things certainly are a beautiful
0: salad greens they can be with you in a week.
1: yeah and radishes are just great like after a while uh, at this time of year i get sick of eating crackers you know i get sick of going to like barbecues and christmas parties and lunches and there's just cheese and crackers i love cheese and i love crackers but after a while there's only so much you can eat and i'm so unrestrained when it comes to cheese platters (laughs) but i just like i was like yes look at all these great dips and cheeses and crackers but, you know, when you've got radishes and baby carrots and things like that, they make, you know, that kind of idea of crudités, you know, when you can use the vegetables as the the vessel for carrying your dips and your cheeses and stuff like that. I feel so much better when I, you know, radish and dip instead of crackers and dip. Uh, and so, you know, they've got so many roles. You can use them on your on your, your kind of crudités, on your cheese plates, your dip plates, and you can also use them in salads, you know. So fresh greens, radishes, really a great thing. And oh, you're pushing it, but still not too late to get something in for Christmas. And, um, you know, and I, I find that, you know, you, if you did that, uh, and you've got you know, that those homegrown radishes and some homegrown leaves, it doesn't really matter what else you've got on the Christmas table. I can guarantee that that will be the main talking point. I don't care how good you glaze your ham, uh, unless you grew the ham yourself and killed the pig yourself, uh, that those simple little radishes that cost you three bucks for a seed, you know, a packet of seeds for 200 of them, and maybe a punnet of like lettuce seedlings for six bucks from your local garden center, like they will be front and center and they will be the thing that you are most proud of on that entire table. I don't care how beautiful your pavlova is i mean it's going to be delicious no doubt but there's just something about food that we grow ourselves that just elevates its prominence and our importance to us and how much we want to communicate and talk about it
0: i was going to ask you um, any particular recipes you'd like to flag and something i really loved from the chat with christine was you you spoke about the big meats the big slow cooks and then the three or four really good side dishes that just zoom in on whatever's actually seasonal right now and i just thought that was you know, so so not too complicated. So things like the cucumber and minty yogurt dressing, it's like That's available now. So you actually dress it up as a whole dish in its own right. Yeah. Would you like to suggest one or two others?
1: I'm so bad at remembering the recipes that are in the book. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, but
0: But just the idea of working with the single one product.
1: Exactly. And I think, you know, I think that's really the, for me, is one of those big focuses is that, you know, I feel like, especially as aspiring cooks or maybe people that they're at the beginning of their cooking journey, we feel like we need to overcomplicate things. Like if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't have 20 ingredients and a secret, ingredient and it didn't take two hours to cook then how can it be good uh when really I, I and you know i kind of came up in the french tradition you know through working in commercial kitchens uh in the french vein of food oh. that that the better the kitchen was the simpler things got in French cookery, you know, you could almost judge the entire offering on the bread, the butter, and the creme brulee, you know, like if you, if you could get those three things right, and they're, you know, on paper, so unbelievably simple, uh, and, you know, creme brulee, only a handful of ingredients, Then, but if you can do the simple things well, then you can do anything well. And I think, you know, that's the the beauty of celebrating that home cooked ingredient is that when you've got something that you've grown yourself with love and care and it's fresh from the garden, it tastes so amazing. Like it really does. I'm not just waxing lyrical here, that there are literal chemical differences in between something that's harvested immediately and something that's been as a part of a logistics chain for the last three months. You don't need to do much to it. And I think that's one thing that I really, fresh is best, exactly. You know, I, I mean, it, it springs to mind like a, a famous experience from um alice waters in the states when she had Chapenny and uh she famously you know served a peach for dessert and this is at the time was the most like lauded restaurant in the united states and one of the most lauded restaurants in the world certainly outside of that kind of french cultural uh, tradition and i think at the time they had a, a new york Times food reviewer there and they were like What is this? I've come to a restaurant and you've just given me a peach. Like, this is is not even a recipe. Like, can't you cook it into a tart or something like that? And she famously came out of the kitchen and said, you know, went on this like amazing kind of rant at the food producer to go, this was picked off a fourth generation peach farm this morning, you know, at the peak of its ripeness. It's an heirloom variety. For me to do something to this as, as a cook is sacrilege. Because this is perfection, you know, this is perfection embodied uh, and I cannot do anything oh, to this. I can't improve it. And for me to think it would be, it would be egotistical and, you know, kind of belittling of this ingredient. So I think, yeah, I keep it simple for Christmas. Certainly, you know, if you want to do a big spread, do a big spread, but just get get your kind of, get one low maintenance i like to cook something slow meat on the bone get up put it in the oven first thing in the morning as the kids are unwrapping the prezzies and it's ready you know kind of early afternoon lunchtime Uh, and then with your veggies like just if you've got some amazing tomatoes do a simple tomato salad if you've got some fresh greens do just a simple green salad just keep those things simple and don't don't put 20 different vegetables into one salad just like let each of them kind of stand for their own texture and flavor and and purpose on the table and and don't be afraid to make mistakes i I always like i like to preface in my recipes that these are guides only like i don't really like to be too prescriptive to people uh because that's certainly not how i cook so it always kind of feels counterintuitive to write recipes (laughs) like if you're making a cake stick to the recipe if you're making bread stick to the recipe but if you're like making a salad And you don't have the walnuts, use almonds. If you don't have any nuts, who cares? Like people people get so bogged down in literally following recipes that sometimes they don't cook at all. And I just really like to encourage people (laughs) to like experiment. There's no wrong answers. The worst thing you're going to have to do is eat something that you might not cook again.
0: (laughs) And what about over summer and heading into autumn, some fun do-it-yourself grandparents, grandkids? What are some of the fun things that we could be doing together over summer and into autumn?
1: Oh, I like making compost, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think like, I really like the idea of, uh, you know, of, of, of communal preserving days, you know, that that's a really great, you know, kind of community. It can be, you can do it at any scale. You can do it by yourself if you want, but generally when it comes to those mass preparation tasks that come with, you know, pickling and bottling and doing all those bits that then, you know, then it's many hands make light work and it can be a really enjoyable day. You know, it's uh put it in the diary, put a pickle party in the diary, put a Posada day in there. we just put a garden garden day in there and just, and just put it out to your friends, go, hey, look, I'm going to cook lunch for you all. Uh, we're going to have a great day. There's going to be wine. There's going to be, you know, bring the kids. We're going to put on a lunch and we're just going to do a little bit of work in the garden. We're going to turn it over. You know, I'd love your help. And, you know, people, you know, if you've got 10 people, like the work's done. in a a snap like it's it's so quick and so enjoyable and and you know and all these tasks all like garden tasks lend themselves really well to conversation you know there's not there's not really any job that i can think of in the garden that you know whether it's planting or harvesting or preparing or you know mulching composting that you can't have a conversation you know like you can always talk to someone while you're doing those jobs you never there's never the machinery is never so loud or you're never so out of breath that you can't converse with another human being. And, and, you know, it's such natural work that you can kind of do the gardening. You don't have to be totally focused in on what your hands are doing, but you can have amazing conversations and I always find people, you know, Speak more freely when they're doing something, whether it be walking or gardening, or you know, or the, the conversation just tends to flow out of us a lot more readily.
0: It's a really warm observation. It's so true, isn't it? But you, you have the be- you often have the best conversations in the kitchen when you're all running, rushing around, you know, just doing whatever. Yeah, totally. Yep. I also really loved. Um, I suppose I was a bit obsessed with um, You know, people getting together and building their portable truck run. Ah, uh, yeah. Portable chook runs is just such a really fun thing to do together. Yeah. At, at any time of year,
1: I guess. Oh, and chooks, and people love chooks, you know. It's uh, young and old. God, who can't waste a good hour just watching chickens go about their, you know, their daily chores because they are such, you know, they've got so much personality and they're such fascinating creatures. We've we spent a lot of time watching our chooks.
0: Yeah, gorgeous. I was going to ask you what should be planning or cooking for Christmas Day. And I think you sort of already sort of outlined it. What about into the new year?
1: You know, we we're very lucky. We live very close to the beach where we are here in Bermagui And uh, we it just goes it goes really casual for the rest of the year. So you know we we've got a great bakery in town. So I don't really worry about making my own bread, but we just always make sure we've got some great sourdough on hand and sort yourself out light breakfast because then we're usually down to the beach. So it's usually like some fruit and usually yogurt, that kind of stuff. And then a, a kind of leftovers lunch you know whatever's left over from between bread and then we kind of come together for for another you know another family dinner whether and usually we like to cook outside at this time of year so and um you know lots of oysters like we're here on the south coast we are you know one of the greatest oyster producing regions on the planet you know the 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 rock oysters from the southeast are truly like a, a a globally significant you know we're like the champagne of oysters uh, down here, and and there's so many different estuaries that produce unique expressions, and we just we eat a lot of oysters
0: <laughs> over Christmas. <laughs> well, lucky you, I'm heading down to Marimbula just for the
1: Marimbula. Marimbula, great, really high minerality, very little freshwater influence. They're just such a beautiful, clean, oceanic rock oyster. Amazing, I love Marimbula's oysters.
0: Yeah, and like the Sydney oyster producers have currently with the floods that have been happening though
1: yeah well i mean we've we've caught that here as well like our, you know I, I spent last year working on an oyster farm um because of lockdown you know when i wasn't writing the book uh so i wrote the book you know kind of towards the end of last year this year uh but then for the bulk of 2020 i was working on an oyster farm during the pandemic and just became really kind of gained an intimate understanding in the in the husbandry of mollusks <laughs> and you know as that's it that sucks because when they get rain the, the leases get shut down but the guy i work for actually just got a fresh water uh, no sorry a, a holding tank installed so he can he can kind of ride out those floods and still sell oysters
0: that's fantastic so paul just you know wrapping up a bit Tell us, how can listeners best get their hands on a copy of your wonderful new book?
1: Uh, so, I mean, all good book retailers. Uh, you know, that's uh, that's one thing that I've, you know, been greatly appreciative of, that the book has been very well supported by traditional retailers. Um, I'd say if you want to get a signed copy, you can get it through growitlocal.com from me. Uh, that'll come to me and I'll get that in the post Probably too late to get it to you by Christmas, uh, unfortunately, but that's so I can still get it out to you. Uh, and then, you know, in terms of triage, I mean, obviously I'd love your support as, a, as an author, uh, but then local bookshops, you know, like the the big, the really big retailers, they can kind of do it for obscene prices that I even I as the author can't match. Um, but, you know, that's the business model they operate on. But, you know, I... Always try to support my local bookstore. I've got a fantastic one in Bega, Candlelight Books, and they're so supportive. And they always track down obscure titles for me. And you know, they look after me. Uh, you know, as both an author and a, as a customer. Uh, and you know, so direct from the author, or independent book retailers, or if you're absolutely in a pinch, of course, you can get it from any major retailer. Thank you for that. Yeah, of course. <laughs>
0: any other tips? Thanks. Callouts, other you'd like to to share at the end of the year? Yeah. Oh well,
1: thanks to you, thanks to you, Anthea, for for starters. Big thanks to you for having me on the podcast and for a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And um, I guess the big the big uh, shout out I'd like to do is to everyone that's growing a little bit of their own food. Uh, and if anyone's listening to this and and they're not doing it, I mean, I, I what I love about gardening is that it kind of teaches us persistence and resilience. You know, and they're very desirable qualities in life. Oh. That's- because it might not work the first time you know you may you may not have overnight success but you know i kind of mentioned this earlier that anything worth doing is challenging you know and 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 as a result you know the the kind of the rewards the challenge versus reward relationship is directly correlated so the more challenging things are the better the rewards often and, and you know and this the, the the journey of learning how to grow food is one that can stay with you for life you know it's uh, the most vibrant 80 year olds i know are gardeners hands down gardening keeps you young and it's something that you can still learn until the day you die so if you're not growing a bit of food start small and get amongst it
0: thanks paul it's been so nice to speak with you and um happy christmas and holidays to you and your family and community
1: and to you and to you anthea thank you so much it was a wonderful conversation thank you
0: i've been speaking with paul west chef passionate gardener sustainability advocate and well-known media personality from river cottage australia gardening australia and more and whose new book homegrown has just been published by Plum Pan Macmillan and is available now. Happy Christmas, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at nourishing matters to chew on. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, you can buy us a coffee or donate at givenow.com.au backslash nourishing or give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.